The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Are you a healthcare professional looking to translate psychedelic research into practice? Then register for Psychedelic Harm Reduction and Integration, a professional training offered by psychologist Elizabeth Nielsen and Ingmar Gorman at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Earn 12 continuing education credits as you discover how to better support clients who have an interest in psychedelics. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Radiate Wellness Podcast with your host, metaphysician, Reiki master, and hypnotherapist, Christy Clemens Hoffman. Each week, we will discover teachings, tips, and tools to radiate your best life ever with practitioners, authors, and luminaries to help you on your path. Wellness, joy, peace, abundance. What do you want to radiate? Hello and welcome back to the Radiate Wellness Podcast, where today we radiate curiosity with return guest Mark Vernon. Now, you may remember Mark had appeared before to speak about his book, Spiritual Intelligence, which was a very, very interesting book. Today, he's back to speak about his other book, or one of his other books, because he's got many. And this is The Secret History of Christianity, or A Secret of History of Christianity, Jesus, the Last Inkling, and the Evolution of Consciousness. Wow, that's quite that's quite a lot packed in here, Mark. I'm excited for this conversation. I think it will be very interesting. I hope so. I mean, the book is my attempt to make sense of Christianity, which has played a big part personally in my life, as well as the fact that it's in the collective consciousness, of course um and yeah so it'd be great to communicate some of that um afresh because that's you know hence hence the the curiosity angle that people come with christianity because it's sort of our first spiritual language and it's so much in the culture still um with a lot of ambivalence sometimes um so i understand that and this book was an attempt to open it up afresh right and um this this is an an older book for you. You pre- published it previous to uh, spiritual intelligence. So when when is this book out? It was about five years ago now, I think. You know, it's not going to go old. It's not <laughs> not going to get. Uh, you know, it's always going to be fresh. Now you are a previous Anglican priest, from what I understand. Yeah. So I was um, a what they call a curate in the church of england and which is kind of like a trainee priest and then it all fell apart for me after about three years and um it was partly personal sort of breakdown really i became very depressed but also i became very disillusioned with christianity and 
in a round and about way, this book was an attempt to finally settle, particularly who the person of Jesus was for me, hence Jesus, the last inkling in the evolution of consciousness. Um, because, you know, Jesus seems to mean so many different things to so many people. And, you know, one Christian's Jesus is wholly objectionable compared to another person's Jesus. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I could sort of get going, if you like, but so that, that, that's, that's the personal context of the book. Now, you, of course, must have been raised Anglican. Yeah, I was uh, born into an Anglican family and it was quite easy for me to get ordained, actually, because I'm, you know, I could pass the exams and I knew the world well. Um, and uh, it sort of made sense because I'm really interested in these things. Um, but, you know, actually being interested in then being a, a clergyman uh, where people project all sorts of things onto you, you go and live in a different place, um, all that stuff I just hadn't really anticipated. I mean, you could have told me, but I just hadn't anticipated it properly. Right, the actual living of it, which I'm sure yeah. has been the concept. Um, yeah. Here in the United States, it's it's a very Christian nation now. It's, that's Our country does not have a national religion like like uh, your country does. And um, many people suffer what we call religious trauma. So I don't know if that is something that you had experienced. I think in a way, yes. Um, I mean, it's not the, 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 even though the Anglican church is the established church, um, it's much more liberally minded, I think, than a lot of American Christianity. And, <laughs> it plays a sort of background role rather than a really a foreground role, you know? So the prime minister would never say, God bless the United Kingdom at the end, like the American president always says, God bless America. So it's a strange thing that although it's the established church, um, it, it can disappear into the background quite easily and then pop up every so often, like when the queen dies and stuff like that. Um, but for me personally, I got caught up in a lot of the debates that still happen in the Church of England around, say, sexuality, around the role of women. Um, and then, of course, you know, the Church of England is in very substantial decline as well. And that's become undeniable, you know, over the last 30 years, which is the course of my adult life. So all that kind of, um, you know, stuff going on can be quite traumatic when you're up close and personal to it right right um so what made you decide you wanted to go into the clergy in the first place well i um had this background in the church and you know was very interested in in religious questions really enjoyed all that side of it i was also um quite pious um i you know particularly more mystical or monastic kind of practices, meditation, um, the litur liturgical kinds of prayers. So, you know, very different from charismatic, but very enthusiastic in its own way. Um, and so it, 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 it made sense for me to, you know, to think about ordination and, and I did, and you had to go through various selection processes and that all went fine. So I ended up getting ordained. Mm -hmm. Right, right. So you, in some ways you kind of fell into it. Yeah, no, I sort of pushed the doors and the doors opened and I kept walking. 
it's a good way to put it. <laughs> no, your I mean your book really does ask some big questions and starts to look at things in perhaps a, a different way. Did you find that your views were I don't know counter or your views were uncomfortable for the church? Well, so I, I left the church and then, you know, the book has come many years later. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, even calling it a secret history of Christianity, you know, for some Christians that is immediately off-putting because it sounds esoteric or occult or um, Gnostic or something like that. Um, but of course, the word secret is a word Jesus himself uses many times in the Gospels. Um, and so that was partly why I used it, but also because I wanted to signal that this is a kind of mystical understanding of Christianity. Um, and there was this very central figure um, that got me onto this and helped me um, understand the figure of Jesus and why Christ became so important, particularly in the West. Um, and that this was the figure of Owen Barfield. And Owen Barfield was the great friend of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, whom both Tolkien and Lewis said was the genius, really. Um, but Barfield was very interested in inner things. He was interested actually in the occult and so on as well, but particularly in mystical understandings and how they have got lost in the modern West. And so Barfield and A Secret History, he's the last inkling. Um, you know, the inklings was the group that included Tolkien and Lewis and, and Barfield was the last of the inklings to die. So he was the last inkling. And he had this idea that our consciousness, our sense of ourselves does evolve. It, sh it changes over time. And hence Jesus, the last inkling and the evolution of consciousness. Um, this kind of cluster of things came together to help me understand Christianity in a way that I felt I could own it. You know, I could really say, ah, oh, now that makes sense to me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so the way that you were, um, your your views on Christianity were evolving, did that make things uncomfortable for you? Well, it was like, it was, it did um, give me a, a sense of Jesus that actually stopped the discomfort because the kind of Jesus who um, bridges an otherwise infinite gap between humanity and God, um, i.e. salvation, that never really appealed to me. Um, uh, and, and certainly the idea that God required some sort of, you know, bloody sacrifice in order to purge our sins so that God could somehow tolerate us. You know, that too just didn't really ever appeal to me. Um, and I wasn't aware that there were other ways of understanding the figure of Jesus. It's interesting in Christianity, um, what they call um, salvation or more generally um, the meaning of, of Jesus has never been fully settled actually. It's always kind of um, open for discussion. Um, who Jesus was is settled in mainstream Christianity, but not what Jesus's purpose was. Um, and so there's always a bit of room for maneuver. Um, but of course, you know, in the in the in the wider culture, certain images of, of a, I don't know, you know, like a bloodthirsty god, or um, you know, the god that requires some kind of um, purging of our sins in order to make us lovable again, um, or at least acceptable in His presence, and that's a very powerful, very powerful notion, and fills all sorts of people with guilt and trouble. 
No, I agree that uh, the idea of someone dying for our sins when we hadn't even been born and blood sacrifice required for a God that loves us does has never made sense to me. And so this really speaks to me in that way. Yeah. I mean, so, so, so essentially the, the understanding that Barfield had, and actually it's very influential on C.S. Lewis. Um, you know, C.S. Lewis, of course, is hugely well-known um, uh, but Barfield's ideas, you see them in Lewis, um, and and Barfield, he like like the other Inklings, like Tolkien and Lewis, he was a, an, a philologist, so he was very interested in words and how words change meaning. And Barfield then took the extra step and said, if you can track how words have changed meaning over time, then words become what he called fossils of consciousness. You could see how ancient people experience life very, very differently from modern people. And he tracked a kind of process of change and realized that Christianity, certainly in the West anyway, was at the pivot point of a move from the ancient world into um, you know, what became first of all the medieval world and now the modern world. And in particular, this has to do with the sense of being an individual. Um, because in the ancient world, if you look at the arts, if you read the poetry of Homer or whatever, there aren't really individuals like you and I. There are kind of divine figures that appear, um, but there's not like Joe who lives down the road. Um, whereas, of course, when we read a novel now, all we're interested in really is the individual. And Christianity, Barfield saw through, initially through the way that words change meaning, um, but then more generally, um, it's absolutely at the, cent at the center of the birth of the modern sense of being an individual. Um, essentially what happens, Barfield thought, is that um, a sense of interiority develops um, so that we can have this sense of a soul, a person working on ourselves and so on, um, at the microcosm within that might mirror the macrocosm without. That wasn't always at all evident to ancient people. Um, and at the same time, the unity of our own person starts to become capable of reflecting the unity of the cosmos, of all things, you know, the one being, um, and of course the one God as well. And so Jesus, who's this figure that can say, I am the way, the truth and the life. This is the coincidence of the individual personhood of the human Jesus with the divine Jesus as well coming together and you know in Judaism as well as in Christianity this phrase I am can be applied both to God and to the human being and so Christianity brings these two sides together and um, I mean it happens a bit in Judaism too and in other traditions but certainly in the west it's the one that becomes most successful um, in terms of shaping the culture and so Jesus Barfield realized um was the figure around whom all this kind of constellated, all these realizations, this new sense of being an individual and being able to relate personally to the one God. Um, and so, you know, Christianity is launched and that, that account of Jesus and why Jesus is significant, you know, made huge sense to me. Um, and so it's one I could really buy into. Right, right. Now we're recording this on April 4th and this Sunday, of course, is Easter. So, you know, the, the story of the crucifixion and, and Jesus, et cetera, is, is very, very forefront in our culture right now. 
And um, yeah, again, it just never quite made sense. Now, something that your book talks about is near and dear to my heart, the Christ consciousness, chapter six. And um, can you talk a bit about, about that? Because I think it is fairly important to a modern viewing of Christianity. Yeah, so it's, it's related to Easter because in short, um, what Jesus showed in his death and then rising is this kind of archetypal pattern that it's through processes of dying that we find a wider life. Um, you know, the phrase born again is used in lots of different contexts, but it is a true phrase in the sense that, you know, sometimes talked about letting go of a smaller self and realizing there's a larger self. Um, you know, we can get trapped in our own personal troubles. You know, I work as a psychotherapist and I think part of the task of psychotherapy is to help people see enough of their personal troubles, not because personal troubles then go away, you know, they they hopefully ease, but they never fully go away. But what it does is release you enough to be able to see a wider life and to start to be able to realize that that's your life too, as well as the more um, personal side. Um, and so that whole process of, of dying and rising um, is, again, it's not just in Christianity, but it's very vividly historically um enacted and and played out in the life of jesus um and which is remembered at easter and so becomes a sort of pattern or a path um that we can all follow in our own ways um so i think that that's that's the pathway to christ consciousness um it's this you know, this mystery that um somehow suffering is involved with new life um and um christ in good friday the death leading to easter sunday the new life um the, a, being able to somehow say yes to that um and know that divine love never leaves in that process even though it can certainly feel like that and you know christ himself or well, jesus himself on the cross of course says the words my god my god why have you forsaken me so jesus knew the depths of despair and yet christ consciousness is still born because the divine actually never leaves us and in fact the leaving is somehow letting go of that small sense of self to step into the wider sense and, and awareness mm -hmm. it's kind of like an ego death to step into a higher a higher consciousness and a more broad sense of who we truly are, which I think is very important. Yeah, no, definitely. The you know that word ego is is the modern word, and um, and it's complicated because you know our egos do us a good service as well. They get us into the world. They give us a place. They help hold us together. I mean, uh, you know, as in my time as a psychotherapist, I've worked on in a psychiatric hospital, and. Uh, you know a severe mental mental illness ward is where people have had their egos destroyed um and it, it it's ruining their lives so the the balance that must be achieved where somehow the ego learns that it's in the service of a wider self and so can um we can still be you know you and me and have a personality and character and qualities and so on but they, that becomes transparent to the wider self rather than blocking it off. 
that that's how I understand it, something like that. No, I agree. And then having this consciousness that we are plugged into, plugged into God, plugged into the universe and of service to on a much greater scale, I think is Im important for us as humans. You know, um, you know, when my daughter was very, very young, well, I teach Sunday school at a unity church and uh, unity churches are very, very open and we fully embrace the Christ consciousness. And that's really what we what we celebrate is the Christ consciousness. And so um, in presenting a, a lesson on Easter many years ago, uh, I said that Jesus had had died, but then he came back and she said, well, that that's interesting. What did he who did he come back as? Because she is, of course, looking at it from a Buddhist perspective, but just coming back into who he was meant to be, this greater consciousness. Anyway, um, so how do you contrast that to this Christ consciousness to the birth of the Bible and the early Israelites? Because great portion of your book is about the early days of, of the church. Yes, this is the idea that um, in the centuries before Christ, a shift of consciousness was unfolding. And certainly in the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, as Christians call it, um, this particularly constellates around the story of the exile. And this is, you know, when, um, first of all, the northern kingdom of Israel and then the southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem itself was was conquered and the people of Israel went into exile in Babylon and this precipitated a shift in their sense of themselves and God um, because previously their relationship to Yahweh had been very focused on Jerusalem and on the temple um, so when that was destroyed and taken away it led to huge soul searching which you can read in the prophets particularly in other books of the Hebrew Bible and a, and a need to reconfigure their understanding of themselves as the chosen people. And I think what you can trace is how gradually, instead of, as it were, God being known in the temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, God comes to be known in what we would now call the soul in, in the individual person. Um, and so that means that the divine presence, as it were, can come with you. Um, and if your religion relied on practices like sacrifice and like um, going up to Jerusalem for the Passover. Um, if you can't do that, then that gets internalized too. And in fact, what happens is in the period between where the Hebrew Bible ends and then the Christian New Testament begins, which is about three or 400 years, the so-called intertestamental period, all sorts of new practices become very prevalent amongst the Jews. For example, synagogues. Um, there's not a single synagogue in the Hebrew Bible, but of course now synagogues are everywhere. And synagogues are about the individual going to learn about the Torah, the Tanakh, um, you know, completing um, the rituals and the rites of passage for life, um, holding um, the festivals and so on, but in a very different context from in a temple. Um, although sometimes synagogues are called temples, slightly confusingly, but nonetheless. Um, and so... But the point is that these new ways of configuring um, a much more individually focused kind of religiosity, then I think come to their fruition in the person of Jesus, who of course was a Jew too, um, went to the synagogue. Um, but um, 
certainly for Christians, brought to fruition and completion, the sense of the individual person being able to know the one God completely. Um, and, you know, even monotheism, of course, emerges in this time in the run-up to Jesus as well. The, the oldest bits of the Hebrew Bible, um, Yahweh is one God amongst many gods. And so um, the idea there's only one God, it, too, there's a development there, um, that Christianity. And then it's, it, it's um, Judaism in its own way does as well, because, of course, quite soon after the death of Jesus, the second temple um, is destroyed in Jerusalem. And then this gives birth to what's sometimes called rabbinic Judaism. Um, which again puts a great emphasis on um, the individual and the practice of the law and shapes a lot of Judaism to this day. Um, so Judaism has its own response to not just the events of history, but also to this unfolding of the individual. Are you a healthcare professional looking to translate psychedelic research into practice? Then register for Psychedelic Harm Reduction and Integration, a professional training offered by psychologist Elizabeth Nielsen and Ingmar Gorman at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Earn 12 continuing education credits as you discover how to better support clients who have an interest in psychedelics. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. Did you know that Radiate Wellness is more than just a podcast? That's right. We're also a comprehensive holistic wellness practice. Find out about our services, practitioners, and upcoming events at radiatewellnesscommunity.com. While you're there, visit our podcast page to read more about our great guests and even donate to the podcast. If you like our podcast, you can help in other ways as well, like subscribe or follow us wherever you're listening right now. Tell a friend, a family member, or a coworker about the great content you find here. And if you wouldn't mind, please give us a thumbs up, a five-star rating, or a positive review. Sounds like a small thing, but it really helps. You might like to know about our Facebook communities while we're at it. We have a free community, the Radiate Wellness Community, on Facebook for news and great free content. Our subscribers group is Radiate U, as in the letter U, but also, well, you. There you'll find curated replays of past classes, guest interviews, and more. And now, Back to our podcast and back to our guest. Um, so that's why the, the, the sort of run up to the story um, helps to make sense of the story. It doesn't just, Jesus doesn't just suddenly appear out of nowhere. Um, there's a whole unfolding and a process. Right. We have to have a context for that and why, why his presence is important. <clears throat> no, absolutely. And um, so, so how, so how is this, his Christianity, how is it secret? Yes, there's a really good question. Um, Jesus, um, the historical Jesus, certainly taught in parables. Um, you know, the New Testament scholarship um, has concluded that because parables are a very distinctive way in which um, the Gospels present Jesus' teaching. Um, and Paul, for example, who came after Jesus did doesn't teach in parables and 
um, very few early Christian figures do, in fact. Um, those that do are just using Jesus's parables. And so that you know, makes you ask the question, you know, what are parables? And I think what they are, are kind of almost like puzzles um, that you wrestle over um, to precipitate this shift of consciousness. Um, and the thing about the parables is that they're, they're not always moral tales. Um, one or two of them can be interpreted like that. And the most famous, probably the Good Samaritan, certainly can. Um, but most of them are kind of a bit neutral when it comes to morality, if not a bit amoral. Um, you know, so for example, there's, there's, there's parables about like the parables of the talents, you know, where um, figures are given different amounts of money and the one that makes the most money is the one that's rewarded the most. Um, now, certainly, you know, if you're on the on the left of politics, that's quite hard to understand. Um, if you're in, into the prosperity gospel, then you interpret it in that way. But I think what Jesus is, is, is using these multiple stories to do is to just kind of tip us through the wrestling into deeper spiritual truths. Um, you know, so, for example, the parable of the talents ends with the famous phrase, um, you know, he um, who is given much, much will be required of them. And um, that's the idea that if the promise of Christianity, you know, and other traditions is to know the divine in your own self, you know, that's to be given this tremendous gift. Um, and so it, it's going to ask everything of us to fully know that. Um, so is that, is that at least a way of, of answering your question in some way, to think about Jesus and the way that he used parables? But he, yes, 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 yes. That he, he didn't come out and just like teach directly, if, if what I'm understanding, so he didn't come out and teach directly, you need to do this, you need to do that, and you need that. Yeah. So that, that's so the, linking back to the word secret. That was it. I, I've forgotten uh, that you said that. And uh, yeah, so linking back to the word secret. So the idea is that it's something that's sort of nascent within you, bubbling within you, um, but you may not be very aware of it. Um, and so as a teacher, you know, how do you precipitate that inwards, um, you know, uprising or um, uh, new life, new birth within someone? Because it's not it's, it's not just a question of if I tell you, you know, Jesus is God, um, that's like a like a neutral fact. And you can see we can d debate it in our heads and so on, but it won't bring anything to birth inside you. Um, whereas gradually trying to understand um, the life that's within us that is other, we're up, you know, nowadays we might say unconscious of, um, but that, that, that's a secret life within us um, by, you know, wrestling and grappling and struggling and, and, and suffering sometimes too. Um, you know, that secret can emerge and, um, and hence Jesus talked about the secret of the kingdom, um, this inner kingdom that, that dwells within us all, that if we live a purely worldly life, we will have no idea of at all. Hmm. I now I understand. Now I understand. It's it's rather a Socratic method of of teaching, you know, helping us discover this truth within us. Yeah, no, I mean I think it's actually, you know, the heart of all good teaching. The you know, the really good teacher catalyzes something in you, guides you for sure, and understands the foot the foot falls upon the way and so on. Um, but nonetheless, you know, it's a bit if you do a if you do a jigsaw puzzle with your child. Um, you don't just tell the child where to put the pieces. You kind of go, oh, no, I wonder where that goes. And, and they discover something and they find joy and delight in it. 
um, it's it's the same process. No, absolutely. And, and as a former teacher, teacher myself, that the student is going to remember and retain it much more if they discover it themselves, whether rather than being told or dictated what the truth is. Yeah, no, you don't, you don't want to cram information. You want to have that delight. And then the emotion and the memory, you know, modern psychology tell us actually goes together. And so that's why um, that kind of teaching is actually much, much better. Right, right. So the secret history of Christianity, the title of your book, of course, refers then to helping discover this growth in consciousness for ourselves. Yeah, very. Yeah. It, it, you know, it, it's the truth, the perennial philosophy that I think is at the heart of all the great wisdom traditions is that is of the of the unity of all things that your being my being is a, a reflection a sharing in the one being um and the secret though is um it's one thing to be told it um but it's another thing to really know it um and so that your life becomes aligned to it and you change as a result of it um and so that that's uh, the birth of um of the secret within you Oh, yeah. I mean, just even reflecting on that, it opens up the enormity of this growth in consciousness. At least that's, that's how I'm seeing it now. It's just, it was almost inevitable. And it was um, really kind of a big deal to have this, um, this new way of thinking, this new way of, of interacting with the divine. Um also in your book, you reference the ancient Greeks, and I know that you have done quite a bit of study in ancient Greek. And um, you study, you've, in fact, you've got a PhD in ancient Greek philosophy, as well as many other things. So uh, what, what about the ancient Greeks is, is important to understand here? Well, actually, you, you're already onto it when you mentioned Socrates there, because Socrates is a, a figure that lives sort of 400 years, 500 years before Jesus, and in the Greek tradition, as opposed to the Hebrew tradition, um, starts to seed this new kind of consciousness. Um, and in particular, in Socrates' case, um, it's rather than wrestling with the meaning of, of our relationship to God and the covenant, like the Hebrews, in Socrates' case, it's uh, um, you know asking questions, all these things which we take for granted. Um, but do we really know what friendship is? Do we really know what courage is? Do we really know what it is to rule a good city-state? Um, which Plato then works into his dialogues that remember Socrates asking these questions. And that invites individuals again to sort of really wrestle and struggle with which that which previously would have just been received by traditions, maybe through myths, through the shared rights of the city. Um, the individuals being asked to sort of take more direct responsibility for all those things through the person of Socrates. And of course, Socrates upsets a lot of people and eventually is killed and put to death as a result. And, but nonetheless, that seeds something that um, gives rise to you know what we think of as philosophy now, but it's, it's actually a, a much wider cultural um, unfolding that becomes known as Hellenism um, in the period after Socrates and so then merges with Judaism so in fact in Jesus's time the kind of Judaism that existed in Israel was Hellenistic Judaism it was a kind of merging of the two 
elements, um, not without tensions, um, but, you know, the, for example, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, the Septuagint, the, the, the Hebrew Bible was actually written in Greek um, and it was regarded as a, as a miraculous um, production of these 70 scholars. Um, so, yeah, so these things have become merged, both the Greek and the ancient Hebrew, um, by the time Jesus was alive. Can you talk about that a bit more? Because this is a new concept for me. I, I knew that much of the, the Old Testament was written in Greek, but what about these 70 scholars? And yeah, well, the, mm -hmm. the, so the Bible um, that was used in the first century AD is called the Septuagint, and that's just the Greek for the 70. Um, and the myth is that um, 70 scholars were put to work independently translating the Hebrew text into Greek mm -hmm. and they came up with exactly the same translation all 70 um, so it was a way of affirming the divine source of the Greek Bible um, you know I mean nowadays um, if you're a Jew you'll learn Hebrew um, because the Hebrew language itself um, is felt to hold much of the meaning and so you want to not just get back to the original language to understand it better but to hear the words spoken in Hebrew as well um, so it works on you in all sorts of different ways well um, for the Septuagint this idea that um, God had worked through these 70 scholars who were working separately but all together was a way of affirming once again that even in the Greek translation, the Bible still was the word of God. Wow, very, very interesting. Um, very interesting. Um, you also, in your book, you talk about the secret kingdom. So uh, can you tell us what that refers to? Yeah, well, if you, um, you know, go to church on Good Friday, you'll um, hear the story of Jesus standing before Pilate um, and in one of Jesus's trials, so Pilate being the Roman ruler of Jerusalem, and Pilate says, you know, um, they say you're a king, and Jesus says, I'm, I'm not a king of this world, um, and asks, asks Jesus other questions, um, and it becomes clear that, um, and Pilate's troubled by this, that he's um, stood before someone who's not actually making political claims um, but is actually standing for a different kind of rule uh, the, the rule of the heart you might say um, uh, the, the way that the soul um, might come to become part of the kingdom of God and in fact that's probably one of the reasons why Pilate actually only um, puts Jesus to death and doesn't round up all the other disciples and put them all to death because if he if he gained the sense that Jesus was actually like a zealot um, wanting to lead an uprising to challenge Roman rule he would have wanted to gather all the disciples um, and sort of squash the whole thing um, but that 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 doesn't happen the other disciples are free to walk around Jerusalem um, you know that's an indication that Pilate although didn't fully get it did realize that Jesus was onto the secret kingdom not the Roman rule Okay, yes, I I understand. Right, right. The kingdom within rather yeah. than 
overthrow the physical kingdom. And right. You know, there's the story as well that Pilate's wife sends a message to Pilate and says, you know, have nothing to do with this man. I've been troubled in many dreams on his account. Um, and so the sense that something inward was going on um, it seems to have affected Pilate quite a lot. Right, right. Uh, so, and of course, Socrates faced a similar fate for his ideas. Why do you think these ideas are so dangerous? Well, it, it, again, there's a sort of sense of something inner or secret in Socrates too, because one of his charges that he faced at the trial that put him to death was he was charged of introducing new gods to the city. And, you know, he was an Athenian and so um, should have had his loyalty to Athena. Um, but it was well known that Socrates had a demon. Um, and this was like an inner voice, an angel, we might say now. Demon didn't mean sort of evil things back then. It just meant go between spirits. And um, this demon, as Socrates said, um, brought messages to him from Apollo. So not Athena so um, from a different god and so Socrates was in effect claiming to have a sort of direct line to another god um, which in the ancient world was a treasonous charge um, because the Athenians should have loyalty to Athena who was their protectress not Apollo who looked after another city-state um, and so this secret inner demon awareness contact with Apollo um, was held against Socrates um, and in the ancient world was quite enough to have him condemned to death. Uh, Instead, I think it was Apollo because um, in the Greek, Apollo means not many. I mean, it's a bit, you know, the phrase hoi poloi means the many. Um, so Apollo means not many. And I think that this is Socrates beginning to get onto the monotheistic sense um, it's not the many gods, it's the one God that he's beginning to get a sense of in his own uh, sort of gathered interiority. Right. Well, and this is one part of this greater scheme, this greater plan is moving from, you know, um, multi polytheistic to monotheistic. What in consciousness do you feel created that movement? Yeah, so, I mean, that's a very, very good question. Um, I mean, one way of answering, I suppose, is that history doesn't stand still. And so the conditions of human life change. Um, so, for example, I think one of the seminal technologies that brought this about was actually writing. Um, mm -hmm. Because before, and in a polytheistic culture, it's much more normal to have an oral tradition to remember the myths and to um, tell the stories and so on. And um, if you have an oral tradition, then many people have to gather, maybe hear the bard or the prophet speak. Um, and there's some sort of sense of a, a shared collective activity. Um, whereas if you receive the word of God through writing, as began to happen, the Bible began to get written down when the Jews went into exile, um, then the one individual has to read the words and make sense of those words within themselves. It's not sort of performed in a particular place with all that that conjures. We have to develop an interior interior imagination. Um, and so that, I think, writing starts to awaken the consciousness that there maybe is 
a singular interiority inside me that then becomes capable of perceiving the singular singular nature of all reality as well. Um, so it's those kinds of technological developments change the conditions of life and shift our consciousness and so bring about a new kind of consciousness. Um, now I think you know a more spiritual way of answering it is that the evolution of consciousness I don't think it um, it's not progressive it's not like um, older consciousnesses can be left behind but I think what the evolution of consciousness does is gradually bring in more and more and more and integrate um, that tradition into the present perception as well and so uh, is, a, is a gradual process of kind of enriching and enlarging um, which is why you know we can still find inspiration by going back to older consciousnesses um, or you know having contact with indigenous practices and so on they help remind us of a part of our consciousness that the modern world um, can easily occlude very interesting okay <clears throat> so what do you feel is the the evolution of our consciousness in this, I don't know, maybe post-Christianity world or this after the advent of this Christianity and the Christ consciousness? Well, I think that our relationship to what we call the natural world um, with ecological concerns, um, you know, one way or another, it's certainly the case that the environment is um, being degraded by modern life. Um, you know, climate change is going to be some kind of challenge. Um, it's happening already to, in some measure, um, whether it be with more ferocious weather um, and so on. And um, so I think that that's going to be not just a technological and a practical challenge, um, but it's going to shift our sense of ourselves in relation to the natural world. And so already, you know, you have people asking, um, you know, do we relate to the wider environment in the best way um, and I think that that can also revitalize the sense of the aliveness of the world in which we live you know to re-enchant the cosmos would be another way of putting it and modern science is rather disenchanted things and that has a certain advantage you know it means that we've been able to exploit the environment um, and, and live much more comfortable lives as a result um, but it's reaching a tipping point, I think, now where we need to um, rediscover the enchanted um, side of life and the new age and, you know, interest in angels and entities and all that whole kind of supernova of exploration. I think, you know, it's going to be a task to sort of try and gather that together, make sense of it, work out how um, we can relate to it, not just as individuals, but culturally as well. Right, right. It's almost going back full circle in a way. Yeah, except it'll be different because instead of just the priests and the initiates knowing how to communicate, you know, to the spirits, the shamans, for example, and now we're in a world where everybody has the capacity to do that because of the significance of the individual. Um, and so, you know, women as well as men, um, all sorts of people um, have the opportunity to pursue a spiritual path, um, which really wasn't the case. Um, in ancient times, it was very much an elite practice to pursue a personal spiritual path, you know, whereas now it's much more democratized. And so that creates its own challenges as well as opportunities. 
Right. Yeah. Right. When, when each one of us is capable of connecting with God on our own or in our own rights, whereas we, you know, didn't, don't go back to the priest or the shaman or et cetera, to do that for us and be an intermediary. So it sounds like um, the way that you're presenting this, it sounds like everything, even, even democracy, uh, social media (laughs) all grew out of this new stage in consciousness i don't know am i thinking about that wrong well you know in some ways yeah um i mean you know there's, there's perhaps lots of forces at work in the development of social media um some of them not so benign um but nonetheless you know the idea that well as, as andy warhol put it that everyone can have their 50 minutes of fame um that's a you know it's another way of putting the the, the stress the significance of the individual um and so we can all become publishers now on social media um, you know that that's certainly part of it if not the whole of it right and we can certainly publish our own books and you know publish our own video and and media and um, you know kind of this the birth of the individual so it sounds like we're in a way yeah changing the consciousness again and these modern times and then even in a way coming back to nature coming back to the environment um as we had way 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 back when that's very very interesting now um you also in your book you talk about uh, you know chapter nine is we must be mystics so can you speak about what that means and how we are all mystics well in some ways it you know picks up on what we were just saying that we live in an age where you know anyone might have an interest in the mystical tradition. You needn't be, you know, a monk or a nun living in a religious house apart from the world. Um, you can be sat watching a podcast, for example, and be interested in mysticism. And um, so that's certainly one side of it. But I think it's also a comment on Christianity to take us back to where we began in our conversation today and how I think Christianity has become, um, very often at least, a kind of moral creed um, where people are worried about how they're living, are they doing right and wrong, are they part of the elect or the damned, um, based on whether they're good or bad. Um, and, you know, this has affected Christianity at all sorts of different levels. Um, and what it tends to lose is the inner, the secret truth, the mystical side, um, which is, no, the heart of it, which I think is the heart of what Jesus brought, um, is that well, as he puts it in John's gospel, you know, I am the father of one and you are in me and I am in you. Um, so this kind of inner perception of things um, and that has always belonged to the mystical tradition in the West. Um, it's got rather lost, particularly since the Reformation, which I think is why a lot of people turn east to rediscover it. Um, but it is in Western Christianity for sure and other Western traditions. Um, and so I think if Christianity has... Uh, sort of a lively future ahead of it it's going to be because new life is found in these mystical traditions right it is um you know here at least in the states there is this it seems it feels to me like a battle between kind of this new way new age way of thinking and then christianity where we toe the line we um you know we are 
we are beholden to the the minister, the pastor, the personality, the Joel Olsteins and the big ministers, et cetera. And it seems like there's a real push pull here. Um, yeah, where do you think this is gonna be playing out? How do you think this is going to to end up? I mean, it'll no doubt be messy. These things are always messy and there'll be suffering and there'll be casualties on the way for sure. <clears throat> but maybe, although there can be the personality cults and celebrity culture and prosperity culture gets all mixed up with all this, at least I think certainly in charismatic movements, there is a truth there, which is that the spirit is for everybody. Um, and, and living a life of the spirit is very, actually, in many ways, is a kind of mystical path. Um, I think it gets mistaken because um, it, it gets confused with, um, you know, me and my life rather than letting go of my life to step into a wider divine life. Um, but nonetheless, if on the one hand it's going to be quite a mess, um, on the other hand, that's only because the truths are kind of like the wheat and the tares, you know, run through the same field of our times. And so we have to learn discernment and, you know, figures like Owen Barfield um, can certainly help with that, I think. Mm, very interesting, right. One of, the, one of the inklings that you talk about. So yeah. you've mentioned several times these inklings and how, you know, there's different members, et cetera. So what was their purpose? What, what was that group? They were a group in the mid part of the 20th century, um, who were all at Oxford or, you know, either at the university or lived in Oxford, around Oxford. And they met in C.S. Lewis's rooms once a week. And you could take along something that you were working on that you hadn't published and read it out and get the critique of the group. And then in a second meeting in the week, they met in a famous pub, which has become famous now called the Eagle and Child. Um, in Oxford as well and had more informal conversations um, and Tolkien was part of that he was a slightly older generation than C.S. Lewis but Lewis and Barfield were contemporaries at Oxford they met as undergraduates you know remember it's a very turbulent time they lived through the first world war um, there was a lot of questions being asked about life um, it seemed that Europe could destroy itself even during the first world war um, and nearly did um, so, you know, they got together and tried to ferment in their exchanges as inklings um, the resources that they felt that modern life needed. And Tolkien put that into his books, C.S. Lewis put that into his books, and people like Lewis, the other members, um, did the same. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so a community of thinkers and a community of philosophers and uh, scholars. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and of course you are quite a scholar. You've written many books and articles. My goodness, how many books are you up to now? Yeah, I don't know actually. I mean, it's partly because I write to work something out for myself. And uh, so, um, you know, kind of older books, you kind of forget because you're interested in the newer book. Um, and, and then the other thing is, you know, the publishers, if they know that you can write books, you get asked to write books in series sometimes because really all the publisher is interested in is, can this person deliver a book? And if you've done that two or three times then they can trust you, you know, so you get asked to do things as well. 
<laughs> Absolutely. Um, your your website is just full of articles, books, YouTube, um, you know, videos, podcasts, and talks that you've done, uh, blog, um, all of this. Um, and you are also a psychotherapist in private practice. Yeah, yeah I, I, I did the psychotherapy training partly because I needed it myself, not least to try and work through some of these legacies of my time in the church. Um, but also because, you know, working on yourself, the ancient Greeks understood that's a crucial thing because it's only then that you become more resonant with wider reality as well. Right, right. Yeah, many people in psychotherapy and counseling turn to that to figure out their own psyches, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we can find all of this and much more on your website, markvernon.com. Do you feel like there's anything we haven't talked about that you think is important? No, look, thank you very much for your interest, for your curiosity. And um, I hope that that has, you know, been of interest um, to you and to other people listening in to just rethink again Christianity, this, you know, amazing tradition, this great tradition. Um, but like all great traditions, it's, it's multifaceted and some of it's less appealing than others. But I think at the heart of it, you know, is something that can uh, speak to our souls and speak to our times. Mm -hmm. No, I, I firmly believe that asking questions of something and questioning something is the most sincere form of, of interest. You know, questioning things is not antithetical to them at all, I, at least the way that I, I think of it. So this has been very enlightening. And I think that any, any discussion of Christianity, religion, um, and, and faith really needs to be asking some questions and looking at it. Um, in a holistic type of way, which your book does very holistic. So yeah, thanks for being on the show and, and taking time to break this down. Hello. Well, thanks for asking me. I love talking about it. So it's a Radiate Wellness is an international community of holistic and alternative healers dedicated to helping you create spiritual, energetic, and physical well-being. To learn more about our practitioners, services, classes, and events, or to schedule an appointment, visit us at radiatewellnesscommunity.com. We spend a third of our lives sleeping and dreaming, yet most of us have no idea what goes on during that time. I'm Kelly Sullivan Walden, and as a dream expert and best-selling author, I'm here to empower you to mine the gold from your nighttime dreams. Join me on the Kelly Sullivan Walden Show, part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Until we meet again, don't take your dreams lying down.